Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Micah chapter 6. <coughs> Micah 6 is on page 779 in your pew Bible. We sort of kind of had two sermon series going on uh, concurrently. We had a study of Ruth that closed last week, and uh, kind of intermixed in there has been some, uh, we've looked at the book of Micah a few times. And so this morning we come to chapter 6. Let me give you about a minute and a half overview of chapters 1 through 5. Uh, we looked uh, at chapter 2 a couple of months ago. Chapters 1 through 3 are, is the judgment language of the book, okay? It's Here's all the ways, Israel, you've broken the covenant, and here's all your covenant consequences based on that breaking of the covenant. So it's, it's, it's the bad stuff of the book. It, it's the, here, here's a detailed account of your sins, Israel. Chapter 4, we get some hope. Micah tells the people of God, okay, you've done all these things, and, and that's true, and there's more judgment coming, but just lift your head up for a minute, and let me point you to something past all that. That, that all that's before you is true, but there's something else that's true, and that there's, there's a new heavens and new earth that's coming. There's worship, there's contentment and peace, there's good stuff. Christ is coming, this ruler that they learn about in chapter 5 is going to come and be a good and perfect ruler. So, yeah, it's bad right now, it's going to get worse, but there's a hope that's greater than that, and that future hope ought to inform you and give you hope now in the present. We come to chapter 6, and we're back down into the judgment language again. We're back down into the, you've done a lot of bad things, and, and God shows this by he's basically bringing a covenant lawsuit against his people. And that's what we're going to learn about in the beginning of chapter 5. Excuse me, the beginning of chapter 6. So let me read, we're going to study the whole chapter, but I'm going to begin by reading just, as, just verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> hear what the Lord says. Arise, please your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to learn from your word. Lord, would you write these truths upon our heart? Would you show us what you require of us, and would you give us hope in your Son, Jesus Christ? It's in his name we pray. Amen. You ever play this game, maybe around a a dinner table or with your friends, the do you remember where you were when dot, dot, dot? Do you remember where you were when some major life event or some major historical event happened? Do you remember where you were on September the 11th of 2001? If you're of a certain age, you probably do remember that. 
you remember where you were when you heard or maybe saw on the television that planes had been flown into the World Trade Centers in New York. I remember where I was. I remember who I was with. I remember what I was wearing. I remember almost everything about that day and really the days that followed. If you're of a certain age, do you remember where you were when you heard that John F. Kennedy was assassinated? You probably do. You probably remember where you were and who you were with. Do you remember where you were on June the 17th of 1994? It's not going to ring a bell with many of you. I remember where I was. That evening, I was sitting on my older brother's bed, and I was watching Game 5 of the 1994 NBA Finals. It was the Houston Rockets and the New York Knicks. And I'm watching the game, and I'm into it. I love basketball. The NBA Finals are the pinnacle of the sports year, in my opinion. And all of a sudden, we interrupt this program, and you see on your television a white Bronco, and it's coasting down a Los Angeles freeway. I don't want to watch that. I don't watch the NBA Finals. I'm yelling at the television, telling them to turn it back to the basketball game. I don't care about this white Bronco. But O.J. Simpson was in that white Bronco. And he had just been charged with the murders of his ex-wife and Ron Goldman. And so for the next 16 months, if you're like me, you were enamored with this trial. It was the trial of the century. Uh, they led us into the courtroom with, with television cameras. I watched every day. This, I was so enthralled in what was going to happen. He's guilty. Of course he's guilty. All the evidence is clear. You got to see the prosecution's case. You got to see the defense. And back and forth we went. It was a soap opera, was it not? And you probably remember where you were when you heard the verdict. I was in my eighth grade history class. And my, my teacher had this little, like, two-inch television that we all gathered around to watch. And you couldn't believe it. We find the defendant not guilty. What? The evidence was too overwhelming. You, we were shocked. And in the days and years that have followed, it begins to all make sense all over again. We got invited into a courtroom. In the passage that's before us today, we're invited into another courtroom. It's a metaphorical courtroom, but it is a courtroom. There's a case that God is bringing against his people, and Micah, his prophet, is the covenant prosecutor. He's bringing the case against God's people. In fact, we even see witnesses that are called, the mountains, the hills, the foundations of the earth. You, you, know, you know what has happened. You know about this covenant. Come in here and testify against God's people. You were there back when this covenant was made with Moses, the Ten Commandments and, and, and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, all these laws. The mountains, come in and tell what you know about this. They were there when God's people disobeyed and they were disobedient to the covenant. They've seen these things. <coughs> It's a metaphorical case, but it is a case. So this first point, the case against God's people. It's, they're not listening to Micah. They're not listening to God. For 40 years, Micah has been preaching, repent, turn back to God, or judgment's going to come in the form of a nation, and they're going to destroy you and take you away. But you're not listening. And they weren't listening because everything in Israel at that time was going great. As we've talked about in this series, the economy's booming. The, the boundaries are expanding. What, what, what's wrong? Everything's going just fine, and God says it's not going just fine. You act like you love me, but you don't really love me. You act like the people of God, but all you do is oppress each other and, and, and take from each other and lie to each other. And so now, I have no choice but to bring a lawsuit against you. It's like us as parents, right? Your kids don't listen. 
and then they don't listen again. And then they don't listen again. And finally you go, listen to me. Listen to what I'm saying. Listen to the words that are coming out of my mouth. Listen. And, and your kids look back at you like, what's wrong with mom and dad? They're crazy. You know, it's like, no, you haven't listened to what I've said. So I had no choice but to fly off the handle because you weren't listening. Now, this, of course, is not God flying off the handle. But he's, you're not listening to me. So here's a lawsuit against you. Here's a case. Here's a requirement, and you're going to receive consequences for all that you've done. You've got to listen to my word and follow my law. So they bring the case, and it's different than it was back in chapter 2. There's not a laundry list of, you did this wrong, and this wrong, and this wrong, and this wrong. There's not specifics. (laughs) The tone is totally different. God comes and says, oh, my people, there's tenderness here. There's intimacy. There's a relationship. What have I done to you? Have I wearied you? Is there a charge you want to deliver against me? Why have you chosen to treat me this way? Answer me. I want you to answer, God says. Answer the questions. Why have you done this based on all the ways that I've loved you and cared for you? Answer me. Well, there isn't an answer, is there? You see, these are the affectionate pleadings of a husband who's been wounded. It's a loving husband asking his wife affectionately, why have you done this to me? I've, I've loved you. I've, I've cared for you. I've taken care of you. We've, we've raised our kids together. It, it, God is saying, why? Why this response? Do, do you see the tone? You see the warmth? And so now God goes into all the things that he has done, and he lists the four things. He says, don't you remember what I did for your forefathers? I brought them out of slavery in Egypt. I saved them. Don't you remember the great leaders that I gave you, Aaron and, and Miriam and Moses? They didn't come out of nowhere. I gave them to you because I love you. I delivered you from the curse of Balak. I, I brought you across the Jordan River and into the promised land. I, I wiped out all your enemies in front of you so you could have this land. Don't you remember that? Don't you remember how I did that for you and for your forefathers? <coughs> I haven't burdened you, Israel. I've loved you. And yet you've continued to violate covenant between us have you grown weary of God have you grown weary of the things that he's done for you and the ways he's loved you have you just forgotten altogether the way that you once were and now you are the way that you used to be in darkness running after things that didn't matter running after things that displeased him but he pulled you out of that and into the light don't you remember that don't you remember the way it used to be and how he saved you because of his loving kindness for you. We grow weary with him. We grow weary with his means of grace, the ways that he reminds us of what he's done. We grow weary with reading his word. We grow weary with listening to sermons. We grow weary with the sacraments. We grow weary with the ways that he reminds us of who he is and what he's done for us. And when we grow weary, we chase after other things. We find our identity in other things. We love other gods. We look for hope and security in other ways. We can grow weary individually, as I've just been describing, but we can also grow weary with God corporately. We can forget the great provision that he's had, perhaps for a church like this. The wonderful grace that God has shown First Presbyterian Macon for the last 200 years. He has blessed this church, hasn't he? with wonderful pastors and elders who have preached God's word faithfully to us. 
with spiritual mothers and fathers who have discipled us in many different ways, for Sunday school teachers, for children's programs, for a beautiful facility that we can enjoy. Let us never forget the ways he has blessed our church body. How do we prove that we have not forgotten? We march into the future without fear, but with great hope. We don't say, well, the millennials are just going to ruin this whole thing, okay? No, the millennials are not going to ruin this whole thing. God is going to work through that generation just as he's worked in the generations prior. He's going to love us. We don't go forward. We feel the cultural pressures weighing in on us. We say, Lord, you are sovereign. You have always done us good. We will trust you. If the last 200 years for First Press has taught us anything, it's that God is faithful. He's faithful to us. He loves us, despite sometimes our unfaithfulness, our apathy, our distrust, and our fear. Let us hear the indictment to God's people and let it resonate with us. What do I need to change? God is calling them back. He's saying, come back into relationship with me. You have drifted away. He's saying the same to us. How have you drifted from the Lord? How have you, the term we often use, backslidden? It's maybe you haven't even noticed it, but you've drifted away from him. He's saying, come back into my covenant. Come back and obey me. Secondly, first there was the case against God's people. Now it's the conduct expected of God's people. They ask, okay, God, we get it. We see that we've done wrong, and we need to respond in some way. And so they do. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Okay, I need to do something about this, Israel says. Micah's kind of given a representative answer of the people here. We need to do something. What can we give you? Would you like burnt offerings? Would you like thousands of rams? Would you like ten thousands of rivers of oil? What can we do to make this right? Hope you see the error in their thinking. They even ask, what about my firstborn? I'll give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. What are they assuming? I can atone for what I've done. Well, they can't. None of us can. We can't atone for our sins. You know that only Christ can atone for our sins. But they think they can step in with what they have and make this relationship right once again. But they cannot. God, I want to make this right. And God says, you're you're asking the wrong questions. Don't ask, what can I give you to make this okay? You should ask with open hands, Oh Lord, what do you require of me? What do you want? I'm your servant. I've come to you in humility. What do you want? And he says, I want all of you. I want your whole self. I want your repentance, and I want you to obey me in the ways that I've asked you to. Micah doesn't reveal in verse 8 a new standard of, of conduct. He's not, this wasn't a secret before. He's telling them much what uh, Justin read from Deuteronomy chapter 10. He's, he's basically saying that in a condensed form. I care about your character and your behavior. I want you to give yourself completely to me. God wants three things, he says. In fact, he says he has showed you, O oh man, what is good. This is an expectation really for mankind, but certainly for those of us in the church. Number one, he wants us to act justly. Justice here describes correct social relationships, what God views as appropriate. We treat this group one way, and we treat that group the same. We do not, do, we do not mistreat or treat unequally. <laughs> we do not abuse or oppress a group of people. There's injustice everywhere at this time, so Israel would have seen how different this is. 
We treat people fairly. We love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, the term justice or social justice has really fallen on hard times in our culture today, and particularly our own evangelical culture. When we hear the term social justice or social gospel, some of us want to turn our church into only that, where we only do social justice things or talk about the social gospel, to the point where that's all we're concerned with, just social issues. And we compare one another and say that's kind of a benchmark for your Christianity. And so we marry ourselves to political parties or to political issues where we should not. On the other hand, we can overreact and say, we're not going to concern ourselves at all with political or social issues. We're just pandering to the culture if we do that. Well, the minor prophets are quite clear that social issues ought to be very important to the church and social justice as well. You know, abortion is one such example. Abortion is a social justice issue. It's a moral issue, true. It's a Sixth Commandment issue. It's a do-not-murder issue. But it's even more than that. Because abortion clinics prey on people and telling them that murdering their child is the only option that they have. Or that it's somehow empowering, or it's a right to choose. And so it's incumbent upon the church to say, that's not true. There are other options. There's an option for life. There's an option to to exalt the image of God. There's covenant care adoption services in our own town where you can take and a family would be overjoyed to adopt your child. We let them know there's there's a better way. But we still minister to those families and say, you are welcome here. If abortion is in your past, you can come and be a part of this church. We will love you and minister to you. But we're clear about that it is wrong. The civil rights movement of the 1960s, it was a social justice issue. The unequal treatment of black people in this country was an issue for Christians to step in and say, no, this is not going to happen. This is an image of God issue. This is inequality. We care about this, and we're going to do something. The Casa Hogar Orphanage that we support in Acapulco, they are doing social justice there. They're taking in children who have nowhere to go, who, who are in danger, and say, we will feed you, clothe you, we will take you to your schools. They are fulfilling this commandment. Secondly, we're to love mercy. This is related, but it's slightly different. It points to the need for people to relate to one another in kindness. When's the last time you praised someone for how kind they were? Often we look down on kindness as if it's a weakness in someone. Well, kindness is a wonderful thing teaching our children to be kind to each other. Philip Ryken in his book, City on a Hill, says this, God wants us to show active compassion through service because this is one of the surest signs that we've been saved by his grace. How we treat the poor and needy indicates where we stand with God himself. If we don't care to have a relationship with God, we won't care very much about the needs of the poor. However, if we love God, then we will prove it by loving the least and the lost for Jesus' sake. Indeed, showing mercy is an essential mark of being a Christian that Jesus can and will use as one of its tests of genuine faith. Thirdly, walking humbly with our God. How do we do that? I hope you don't wake up every morning and say, okay, Lord, what can I do today to get you off my back? I don't want you to bother me. I just want to be able to do what I want to do. No, we don't say that. We wake up and say, Lord, I'm your humble servant. What do you want from me today? I have responsibilities with my job. I have responsibilities with my family. But I want to serve you and please you today. What can I do? 
We come before him and saying, Lord, what do you require of me today in your service? And this last one really drives the other two. If we're walking humbly with God, shouldn't seeking justice, loving mercy, loving kindness be an outflow of those things? Lastly, point three, the consequences for God's people. In these final verses, God delivers the sentence, if you will. They have not listened. They're continuing in the way that they are going. And so Micah addresses numerous ways that they are going to receive judgment. All the ways they have not pursued justice but oppressed one another. So God asks rhetorically, you, Israelites, you use dishonest scales. You say this is a five-pound bag of grain that you're selling to someone. It's actually three pounds. But the scale you have indicates that it's five. You're lying. You lie to people. You oppress them. You're dishonest. Am I just supposed to turn the other cheek? Am I just supposed to not worry about it? Uh, No, your injustice is something I must step in and punish. As a result, the following things are going to happen. They're going to eat, but they're not going to be satisfied. Isn't that one of the great things about eating? Is sitting on the couch and you're full and you're satisfied? It's saying, you're going to have some great meals, but you're not going to be satisfied. What else? You're going to tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. Tread grapes, but not drink wine. You're going to work really hard, but you're not going to see any of the benefit of your work. Which was the exact opposite of when they came into the, into the uh, promised land. It says in Joshua 24, you're going to come into the promised land and you're going to live in these huge fortified cities that you didn't even build, but you're going to be blessed by them. You're going to labor on these fields, but you didn't have to do anything to earn that. You're going to receive abundant crops and wine and oil and all these things, and you didn't have to work for it. So on the front end, that was a blessing. Now, in judgment, it's turned upside down. All the hard work that you've put into it, someone else is going to enjoy, not you. In this last section, they received the sentence for their sin. And it's made even worse at the very end when it says, Judah, southern kingdom, you remember what happened to the northern kingdom who was conquered? That's coming to you. And the reason it's coming to you is because you've acted in the same way that they acted under their two most heinous kings, Omri and Ahab. You're just like them. This is the reason the consequences are coming. It's because of your disobedience. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, these are the consequences that are coming. If you don't know him, huge covenant consequences are also coming for the people of God if they're not following God. In doing what he says. There are many functions to the preached word, but one of those functions is calling the church back to a right relationship with him. It's a call for you to assess your walk with God, to are you walking in faith, examining your own heart. Some of you today have strayed from the Lord. You strayed. Maybe it's the fact that you've only attended church once in the last six months. You can see it by that. Maybe it's the fact that Really, you only consider the things of God on Sunday morning, but you want nothing to do with Him the rest of the week. Maybe it's the fact that you're so entangled in your sin, you need someone to point it out to you. You've got to stop that. That's not what the Lord wants from you. You pray that God would give you victory over it, that you'd repent, that you'd put it to death. This is a call to examine ourselves and our heart today. As a result, we often stay away from the prophets. The language and the imagery are really hard to understand. It's a culture that's very far removed from our own. There's harsh judgment. There's the moon turning into blood, and we just don't know what to do with that. 
It's apocalyptic stuff. And so we usually just turn to Paul and say, okay, I understand what Paul's trying to say. I'm not going to study these prophets anymore. Now, Paul had a difficult job to do as well. But the prophets really did because they were speaking to a group of people who were already in covenant with God, yet they had broken it, and the prophets were calling them out for their sin, and they just didn't see it. And oftentimes it's because they didn't want to see it. The people were satisfied with their religion. The economy was good. Everything was fine. We're comfortable. We don't need to change. And pastors today serve a prophetic function in a similar, though not identical, way to what the prophets did. And usually we don't like preachers telling us what to do any more than they didn't like the prophets. For preachers, it can be more difficult to preach to a group of established Christians rather than a group of new converts. We're set in our ways, aren't we? We've been doing ministry a certain way for many years. We don't want to change. We've enjoyed it one way. We don't want to do it another. And so we cannot see our blind spots. Often we don't see our sinfulness. We don't see how we've strayed from him. And so we need the pulpit, we need one another to bring us back. Because this covenant from God, it's a tender God saying, come back to me, come back. Don't you remember the covenant vows you made? Don't you remember how you promised to love me and to follow me? Have I wearied you in some way? Have, have I not kept my end of the bargain in some way? God says, no, I have. Come back to me, come back to right relationship with me. Have we misunderstood what will please God? And we're really just concerned with what pleases ourselves. He wants our obedience. He wants us to do his will. Dwight Eisenhower uh, became the supreme commander of the Allied forces in Europe at D-Day. <coughs> and, and he requested at the end of the war that Congress and the press come and document the atrocities of the concentration camps. And so he said this, The things that I have seen beggar description. The visual evidence and the verbal testimony of starvation, of cruelty, of bestiality were so overpowering as to leave me a bit sick. I made the visit over here deliberately in order to be in position to give first-hand evidence of these things if ever in the future there develops a tendency to charge these allegations merely to propaganda. Seeing the Nazi crimes committed made a powerful impact on Eisenhower. And he wanted the world to know what happened in the concentration camps. And so on April 19th of 1945, he cabled George Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff at that time, with a request to bring members of Congress and journalists to the newly liberated camps so that they could convey the horrible truth about Nazi atrocities to the American public. And within days, congressmen and journalists became arriving to bear witness to Nazi crimes in the camps. Why would Dwight Eisenhower want this? So they would never forget what happened. Because he knew there was going to come a day when people were going to deny that this happened, which, of course, that's true now. And he said, this, this can't happen. We can never forget one of the main reasons we fought this war. We can't forget the things that happened. In a different way, we can't forget the things that Jesus Christ has done for us. Because the minute we do, the minute we lose thought of that, we begin to slip back into sin. We begin to chase after the idols. We begin to find our identity in our work and other things. We've got to remember all that he has done. Because just like Israel, we will turn away again and again and again. The requirement of this passage, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, can we do this? Are we expected to do this? Yes, we are. 
but we also trust in a Savior who has done this already. Jesus loved justice and pursued it. He loved mercy and kindness, and he showed it to everyone that he was with. And if there was ever a person who walked humbly with his God and his Father, it was Jesus Christ. He didn't want to go to the cross. He asked that the cup would pass from him, but he knew his Father's will was what was most important. So when we think of, what does God require of me? I can't make this right. I can't atone for my sins. You're right. That doesn't absolve you from obedience, but it absolves you from atoning for your own sins. Jesus has done that. And we must realize that we don't have a contractual relationship with God. We have a covenantal relationship with Him. A lot of your life is contractual. I had a contractual relationship yesterday with a uh, service repairman who was coming to my house to fix my uh, refrigerator. And he didn't come, by the way. So he violated the contract. It was very frustrating. We don't have that kind of relationship. We have a covenantal relationship with God. And he's telling us, come back. Remember what I've done. Remember how I've loved you. Remember how in Genesis chapter 15, when these this strange story of these animal pieces being cut and laid beside them, and he says, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, then let my body be like these animal pieces. But he also looks at Abraham and says, if you don't uphold your end of the bargain, then let my body be like these pieces saying, if I, don't uphold, if I don't uphold it, I'll take the consequences. If you don't uphold it, I'll take the consequences. And that's what we see Christ even fulfilling the very points of our sermon today. The case against us, Jesus says, I'll take the case. Give me the charges. Give me the indictment. The requirement, I'll fulfill it, and I'll fulfill it perfectly. And then the consequences, I'll take them upon myself, and I'll go to the cross, and I'll pay for them. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to love mercy, to act justly, and to walk humbly with your God. That we would do that, but that we would remember that Christ is the one who's fulfilled this. He made him sin who knew no sin, so that we, followers of God, might become the righteousness of God. Let us pray. Lord, would you forgive us of our sins today? (laughs) Would you forgive us of all the ways that we forget? We don't honor you and glorify you for all that you've done. But Lord, that our hope would be in Christ. It wouldn't be in ourselves and what we do. Lord, there may be some here today that don't know you, that they would see that the hope and the confidence we have is in Jesus and all that he's done. And for those of us here, Lord, today that know you and been walking with you, but perhaps have strayed, would you call us back? Call us back because of your covenant into a loving and caring relationship where you love us and we obey you with gladness and joy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.